Hello and thank you for listening. This is Rich Goodman, Managing Director, Global Capital Development and Business Transformation for Toronto Stock Exchange and TSX Venture Exchange. Welcome to TMX Presents, the podcast. This is where we have conversations with capital markets leaders and visionary investors from around the world. One of my roles is to unlock global pools of capital for our listed issuers on the TSX and TSX Venture Exchange. In today's episode, we are going to talk about ETF investing with Laura Lau. Laura is the Chief Investment Officer at Brompton Group, where she is ultimately responsible for the investment decisions connected with over $2.5 billion in assets. She has been in the financial service industry for over 25 years, won multiple awards as a fund manager, and is here today to talk to me about ETFs. Welcome, Laura, and thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me here today, Rich. Laura, you're the Chief Investment Officer of Brompton Group and oversee $2.5 billion of assets. Let's talk about your journey of how you got there. So I'd say my journey has been different than most people. Most people, they take uh, commerce and then go into the business. I actually took a different route. I actually trained as an engineer. And from there, I actually worked for the Air Force. That's where I actually lived on an Air Force base. And that's where I actually practiced as an engineer. And then after that, I switched into information technology. I was a programmer there. And then I worked my way up to basically manage the IT department. And it happened there that I really enjoyed investments. And that's what I did for my hobby. And then I studied for my chartered financial analyst. And from there, I actually switched into the investment department at one of the mutual fund firms I worked at. And there we did things like manage other portfolio managers. We would do asset allocation, strategic and tactical. And then from there, I switched into, you know, managing equities. And I've enjoyed that ever since. We got to go back to your Air Force experience. So what was the most cool thing you've done or did at the Air Force? I think one of the coolest things I did there is I actually got to fly one of the flight simulators for the Hercules aircraft because that was one of the things I was working on. And that was a lot of fun. I'll bet. Did you get to do it often or just the one time? I only got it to do it the one time. I'd love to do it more often, but it does cost a lot of money to run one of those simulators. Well, that's one more time than I've done it. So that's <laughs> pretty awesome. Laura, I have to ask, did you crash the plane at all? Many, many times. I didn't realize it would be that hard. I thought it would be more like a video game. So that's why every time I land on an airplane now, I'm always clapping because I know how hard it is to land an airplane. Yeah, I think I would have crashed that plane uh, right away, maybe even a few times on purpose. <laughs> how did you go from the Air Force to managing money? So as I said, what happened was I was able to work in the information technology of a mutual fund company, and I did study for my chartered financial analyst, and from there I actually did an internal transfer. So I was lucky enough that they saw that I have the ability to make that change over. I'm definitely grateful for that. Did you always have the desire to manage money? I would say that I developed that through time, because if I had realized that when I was younger, I probably would have gone straight into business. But I do think engineering is a great training ground, helps you analyze things, solve problems, and I don't regret that. I do enjoy the investment world a lot better. What was your association with money as a child? So as a child, I would say that growing up, I found that my father was not good 
with managing money. And he would rack up debts. And as a result, as a child, I wanted to be the opposite. I wanted to make sure that I would balance my budgets and I would invest my money. And I never had to worry about financial security like my father did. That must have been really forming for you, really shaping how you ended up managing money yourself. Yes, there's no doubt about that. That, I think, was one of the driving forces behind that. Outside of work, Laura, what do you do for fun? Well, I love to travel. Just came back from Utah. We did the Big Five National Parks. We went to the Grand Canyon. So I really enjoy going out to the outdoors. Before that, we were in Iceland, again, hiking. We got to ride the Icelandic ponies. So I like to keep active. And I have a lot of energy whether it be to manage portfolios or, you know, go out and exercise. So I want to keep that up. I think maintaining your health is very important, mental health and physical health. Absolutely. I also know you like doing ATVing. Were you able to do any of that in the Grand Canyon? We actually started in Utah, and then I actually drove across the border to Arizona, and we're able to do ATVing there in a place called Vermilion Cliffs, and it was utterly fantastic. It was a lot of fun. Awesome. Let's get to some more serious stuff. We're seeing incredible volatility right now, and you're no stranger to volatile markets. How do you handle these types of market conditions? So I do think that we're going to have a lot of volatility going forward. And part of the reason this year has been really the Fed. The financial basis of all markets is what is the risk-free rate? And this year, that's really been reevaluated with the Fed increasing rates, you know, what's happening in the bond market. So this year has been a very unusual year where the most volatile markets have been the fixed income markets. It's been a five standard deviation event. It's been more volatile than foreign exchange, equities, every single market. So we've all been getting motion sickness. So what we need to do is settle down and figure out what will the risk-free rate be because all Asset classes are priced off that. And for that, we have to get a handle on inflation. So we do believe that the Fed will get a handle on the cyclical part of inflation. We do believe they want to engineer a slowdown and a slowdown enough that it'll likely be a recession. They need to balance supply and demand. And we think the Fed can do that, especially with these high rates. It does take time to feed through the system. But we do think this time around, inflation will be structurally higher. And why? Well, one big reason what we've seen is for the longest time we had the benefit of globalization. Cheaper Chinese labor, China was exporting deflation. Now in a deglobalization world, it means that prices will be higher. Trade wars are inflationary with tariffs and you can't move to China, which was the cheapest place anymore. You're going to have to move to higher cost jurisdictions. And we've also seen that commodity prices, we think this cycle will be higher simply because of underinvestment, don't have enough infrastructure. And we're also seeing labor. Markets are very tight. We're seeing a lot of people leaving the labor market due to retirements, demographics, and some of the people may come back and some won't. But we do see that structurally inflation will be higher. As a result, we also think that interest rates will be higher. So that will build some volatility because the Fed is still trying to increase rates. Their goal is 2% core inflation 
we're so far above that it'll take a while to get there. And as a result, since we are in this price discovery phase, we do believe volatility will be there to come. And as a result, what we do is a number of things. We're very macro-oriented. We look at what's happening in the world, whether it be Ukraine, what's happening in China. And what we do is we go top down from there. What do we think are happening with the economies? Where's the best place to be sector-wise and geographic? We're more sector-driven, but with what's happening now with higher geopolitical risks, we're looking also very carefully from a country basis. So I think that you have to be a lot more nimble in these markets. You can't just buy the fangs, you know, your Facebook, Amazons, Netflix, or your fangmans and just close your eyes. Those days are gone. I think that we have to be a lot more, dig deeper into the companies and see what they're doing and also see in this kind of environment who can pass on costs, who have better business models to weather these storms. So I think that, you know, as portfolio managers taking care of people's money, we have to do a lot more work on the macro level and also on the company and the business level. And the other thing we do is we also have a covered call program. In Canada, we execute a lot of those with the TMX. And what the covered call program does is harvest the volatility market and generate income. And with that income, we are able to reduce the volatility portfolio and generate income. And with income, that inherently decreases the duration and decreases the risk of a portfolio. You had mentioned earlier in your answer that with these uh, Fed rate increases, it does take some time for these increases to get fully reflected in the market. And in past cyclical markets, we've seen overcorrections and where they keep raising the rates far past where they should. What makes you think that they're going to get it right this time? Let's be honest, between you and me, Rich, the Fed should have increased interest rates earlier and they should have did quantitative tightening earlier. So the Fed has realized that and so has the market. So, and the Fed in the past has not done a good job of threading that needle. So that's why I do believe that there is a real risk of the Fed increasing rates too much and too quickly. We've seen these interest rates before but not quite at the speed. So there's a real danger of that. So I would say that there are some markets that are already in recession, like housing. Housing, it does tend to speed through very quickly, and goods, and partly because we already bought all the goods during COVID. So I think those we're already seeing. I would say this time around, the labor markets have been very strong. Anybody who wants a job can get a job and get paid well. So as I said, I just came back from Utah. There were help-wanted signs all over the place. But what's very important is even at the grocery store, there are big signs up there, $17 to $19 an hour, U.S., which is like kajillion Canadian dollars. So those people who got left behind before, they can actually earn a living wage. All those people in the low income, they tend to spend what they got. And people, middle and higher income, have done very well during COVID. They still have excess savings. So this is why this time around we do believe that the recession will be shallower. I think it'll be longer. So, for instance, COVID was very fast. I do think this recession will be longer because 
of those interest rate increases. But the other thing we expect this time around is that, yes, unemployment will rise, but we don't think as much as previous cycles, because if you let people go, it's really hard to get them back. And we're starting to see that. Like right now, you see all these layoffs, but they're absorbed very quickly in the rest of the economy. You clearly have a keen understanding of the global economy and how certain macro events and trends can impact the markets. You touched on this somewhat already, but as the world changes, how do you change? As an engineer, I always believe in continuous improvement, that we can refine our process better. And part of the process is certainly looking at what happened in previous times this has happened. Every time, it's a little different. So I challenge my staff every day to improve the process. And the other thing is I don't think you can be wed to an idea. What I mean by that is in the beginning of the year, it looked like things were reopening, everything is good. And then, of course, the war in Ukraine broke out and we had to reevaluate everything. And then, you know, we took a step back and said, with what's happening in Ukraine, what do we expect to happen? So we do go back to the drawing board and say, what should we change? And we think that this time around, you have to be a lot more nimble in these portfolios. We decided that there'd be more volatility, so we ramped up the Carl writing substantially. And as I said, we moved more defensive very quickly. And we do more stress testing the portfolios. We do more testing of the correlations and how we can bring the volatility of our overall portfolios down. And as I said, I think we have to constantly refine our process and make it better. So we've used new tools to make that happen, you know, added to our process. And I think that we have to constantly reevaluate to make things better. I tell my people every day, we're wrong. Either we should have sold something or we should have bought more. But we want to be more right than wrong. So I don't want my staff to be wed to an idea and be very stubborn when things have changed. When things have obviously changed, we have to change. We are custodian of people's money. We take that responsibility very seriously. So you talked about your team, which is a great segue to talk about Brompton Group and about Brompton's products. Among other funds, you construct and manage ETFs. What goes into constructing an ETF? So what we do is, as I said, we're top down. And that means that typically from a sector basis, we try to allocate, do we want to be overweight, underweight? And then we also have some sector funds like technology and healthcare, and we also go through those subsectors. So what we do is we actually publish this to our clients. So we're fully transparent. This is how we see things. And we also publish and say, this is what we think is positive about the sector, subsectors, and what's negative. It could be valuations, it could be funds flow, it could be fundamentals, and we publish that every quarter. So as I said, we think about this constantly, and then we, from that, deciding where we want to be overweight, underweight, we choose the best companies there, and my staff will research the best companies, the best business models. We do look at things like free cash flow, but I think in this environment, you really have to look at the business models which will be more resilient in this kind of macro market environment? And which are the management teams that can steer you and be nimble enough to make those fundamental changes? When constructing these products, what's your primary goal? Is it growth, income? 
So I think it depends on the mandate. What I mean by that is we have a number of portfolios. So for instance, if it's technology, it tends to be more growth oriented. And then we also have some dividend growth mandates. And then so for that, it would be more income focused with a little bit of emphasis on growth, but more on the income side. So it really depends on the mandate. But overall, the idea is still that we do the same process, as I said, top down and then bottoms up with the best companies there. For those funds where income generation is the primary focus, what strategies do you employ to generate income? So as I said, some of the strategies are that we do have a dividend growth mandates in general. And those we've seen over time that dividend growth has outperformed definitely over long term because these companies, it means they have confidence in the future because they're able to increase their dividend every year. They tend to be larger, more stable companies and a lot of companies that people have heard of. And in this kind of environment, I think that's very important because stability is, I think, undervalued right now. And people feel more comfortable going to those brand names that they trust, whether it be McDonald's, Apple, Microsoft. And we have a lot of those in the core of our portfolios. Trust is very important, I think, in this kind of market. How long does it take to construct a new fund from idea to launch? It depends on, I would say, the fund. So, for instance, we just launched a fund called BMAX, which is a fund of ETFs. That doesn't take as long because I already manage the portfolios. If you're doing a new idea, like, for instance, during COVID, we did launch a closed-end fund, Sustainable Power and Infrastructure. So for that, we already managed similar funds, but that is more a core idea and core ESG sustainable. So that did take uh, maybe about two months and to close about three, four months. It depends, but the good thing is my team, we do have global expertise in different sectors. So that becomes a lot easier as well when you do have that base expertise in-house. If we're doing with third parties, that takes longer. And when the world changes in that time frame before launch, how do you adapt? So when the world changes, you have to decide, is this still the right strategy at that time? Or maybe because the world changes it is the perfect strategy that maybe you're launching at the bottom of the market. So we have had a number of strategies that I think that we have launched at the bottom of the market. As I said, we've just launched BMAX, Fund of Funds. It's 33% leverage. So at the bottom of the market, you're getting the benefit of that leverage. We also launched our Real Assets Fund really April, the bottom of COVID, and our Low Vol, the bottom of COVID. So you got to think if this is a good time and you truly believe that, then you should proceed with the launch. Tell me about some of Brompton's other products like Split Share Corps and Preferred Shares. So the way you think about it is it's a portfolio. And for instance, I'll start simple, like uh, SBC is the big six banks in Canada. So what you would do is you would pay a preferred dividend on that portfolio. So right now it would be six and a quarter, which is a very good yield, definitely better than what you could get with the GIC. And then the rest of the upside goes to the capital share. You kind of split shareholders, kind of like the old income trust idea where you have those that really want growth, they go after the capital share. There's leverage, inherent leverage there, very high distributions that are very tax effective, or for those shareholders that want very stable income. 
And the other thing we've seen in the preferred share market is has been shrinking because the issuers, if they can get debt or funding at a better rate, they'll call those shares. Whereas ours, it's actually the opposite. If you don't like the rate we give you, you can give it back to us and you get your capital back. You gave us $10 to get $10 back. And that's been very attractive in this market where government bonds have been going down substantially. So we've seen that there's great demand for that and great demand for income in general. As I said, our capital shares, they supply very high income on a monthly basis, which is very attractive to our shareholders. So what we found is that people need income even more than before. So they're really liking those products. In volatile markets, your clients like that downward protection. Yes, they like that downward protection. And as I said before, when you get income, cash in your pocket, you bring down the volatility of your portfolio. Cash has less volatility. And getting it in your pocket makes people feel better. As I said, brings down the duration of your portfolio. You started in the Air Force, a fiercely male-dominated environment, particularly during the time you were there. As a woman in that environment, how did that experience shape you? So I never really thought about it. I've always been in male-dominated fields, like, as I said, engineering, especially when I went, not even 10%. The Air Force, male-dominated. I worked in IT, male-dominated. And capital markets is no different. Sometimes it's worse in capital markets. So for me, I did what I wanted. I didn't care how many women there were. I just went where I wanted to go, and that has served me well. So I would say to any women out there, don't let that dissuade you. Do what you want to do. It does make it harder to break in. There's no doubt about that because people like to hire people like themselves. However, I think they're all great careers, and I don't regret any of my time there. Is it easy? No, it's not easy. But I do think that it's worthwhile. And as I said, I've had very interesting careers in all of those, and I would do it all again. You worked 10 years as an investment analyst before becoming a portfolio manager. Would you say that compares similarly to your male counterparts? I would say that I've been lucky in the sense that I think I was identified very early as high performing. And I was able to move through the ranks quite quickly. You know, investment analyst, senior investment analyst. And then I actually did, never got to be an associate portfolio manager. I kind of skipped straight to portfolio manager. So I think I was lucky that I was identified very early as, you know, very hardworking and somebody on the rise. So I didn't feel as many barriers as I'd say other people because of that. And then you built the investment department at Brampton and now run it. Yes. So when I came to Brompton, there was no investment department and I brought the assets in-house and I've been able to build it. And as I said, it started with just me, hired four more people and we're in the midst of hiring a six person. So I'm very happy and I built my team up and I'm very proud of them. Let's ask you about some career advice next for young women and men that are thinking about breaking into asset management as their career choice. What advice do you have for them? I would say, number one, never stop learning. That's what I think is a lot of fun and very exciting about this business is you have to constantly learn. There's always new things. So you have to be very open 
to learning. The other thing is you have to have very good communication skills, especially, you know, oral skills. You're always selling yourself. I think that's what people don't realize that, you know, sales has a very negative connotation, but you have to sell yourself. You have to sell your ideas. You have to pitch them. And if you don't do that, you're never going to get ahead. You also need, you know, good written skills. But I think number one is oral skills and passion. That's one thing I hire for. Some of my other jobs, that's what we hired people who love what they do because there's always going to be tough times. We're in the midst of a bear market and you got to love the job and you got to love markets because it doesn't always love you back. There will always be tough times. Are you seeing a difference in the new generation of staff that you bring on in terms of their presentation skills? I would say that in general, not just in my business, but overall, there's been more and more immigrants coming in. And I know some of them get upset when they don't get promoted above native English speakers. And that's a shame because they do have very strong analytical skill sets, but they do have to realize that this is a people business. We are put in front of clients. And that's the other thing I tell people is you always have to remember we're taking care of other people's money. And I do think that anybody in this business should take a chance and talk to people, your clients, because you're taking care of their money. You're giving them financial security. And you always have to remember that, that why we're here. We're here to take care of people's money. And when you do that, you have to be able to communicate with them, make a connection. And with that, you have to have good communication skills. And certainly we're seeing that a lot of new generations, especially with COVID, they don't always have those people skills, the ability to read body language. It's almost a lost art, the art of conversation. So I do think that they have to realize this is a people business and people have trust in you. You have to build that trust. And that typically is through communication. I know you said you have no regrets, but if you could do it all over again, would you do anything differently? I don't think I would because I believe you learn a lot more from your mistakes than your successes. And I have learned from them all. And that's very important to me to try to figure out what I could do better. And as I said, that's part of my investment process. It's part of me as well. I try to have as few regrets as possible. That's how I try to live my life, whether professionally or personally. Great answer. Laura, I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for taking the time with me today. Any final words before we sign off? I would say in this kind of market, stay invested, stay diversified. And I would say also bear markets, it's normal. It is quite normal to have bear markets. We're down about, as of October, we were down about 25%. Average bear markets are down about 23%. So we're having an average bear market. I don't believe we're going to have a great financial crisis like we did out of the U.S. banks like last time. The banks are in much better shape, the consumer is in better shape, and the mortgages are not overextended like last time. But we'll probably have something else happen this time. Every bear market's a little different. But we will get out of this and just stay invested because if you sell, then you've locked in your losses. Thanks again, Laura. Okay, thank you, Rich. And thank you for listening to TMX Presents, the podcast. For investing in market information on TSX and TSX Venture Exchange, please subscribe to our monthly Investor Insights Report 
and our monthly market intelligence report by visiting tsx.com MIG. And for more insights from capital markets leaders and my TMX colleagues, please visit tmx.com POV.